said to you in the first sermon about this, that coronavirus is going to take some things from you. And so as Christians, we need to figure out what in the gospel we were going to take from it. And um, that has pretty much borne out in the last four or five months. Um, we've had a disease outbreak that's affected the entire world's population. There's been a lot of sickness. There's been death. There's been a lot of isolation, human isolation that is bad for the human soul. In fact, for the first couple of months, probably three months of the coronavirus pandemic, as pastors, we were dealing with much more severe problems related to isolation than we were um, related to the disease itself. It's only the last week and a half or so that um, someone associated with High Point Church has passed away, Arsenio's mom. And so um, there's been a lot of stuff related to all of that. And some of it as important as people getting sick, some of it as difficult as having to spend time with your family if your family is dysfunctional. Um, or some of it has been things like people who didn't sign up for homeschooling, trying to homeschool while trying to work at home, while trying to— even when not a lot has happened that seems that weird, it still takes its toll over time in things that you think shouldn't really affect you that much. And sometimes I've talked to people who feel pretty humiliated at how hard it's been for them because nothing huge has happened. But a lot's happened. And it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. If you look at the cases in Dane County, they've popped up a lot in just the last few days. And Dane County has already halted going back and going into phase three. And so this isn't going to end anytime soon, right? Similarly, um, at exactly the time when most of America had a lot of extra time on their hands, um, some really terrible events related to the deaths of of particularly three of our black brothers and sisters came out really publicly. George Floyd being the most famous, obviously, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. And that, um, with the sort of latent energies <laughs> that existed, and also the really clear evidence, it's the worst video I've ever seen in my life related to this, except for some of the police training ones I've seen. And um, just it just erupted in a lot of advocacy and protest and discussion and Twitter storm and and ultimately, in some cases, destruction of property and violence, and, um, and it's been a lot for everybody involved, um, some more than others, obviously. Um, but that's also—that's not going to end anytime soon. And, and it maybe shouldn't, right? We've got to sort some things out. Also, I wish I could say that was it, but it turns out the curse is still at play. And, and so all, there's all kinds of things in our health and our lives and our families and all the things we're trying to do that are frustrated and brutalized and difficult and that aren't making the news and that aren't, that aren't popular, but that are difficult. And the curse, until Jesus returns, it's just, it's not going to end anytime soon. Okay? And then I think for a lot of us, um, there has been some comfort in the fact that Jesus is the same, um, but that also our church is the same, and that there's some stability, and that the gospel is preached, and that we can worship God, and that, and that the people leading us, we know, and we, ha- we, can, we trust some guidance and leadership there. And, and yet, you know, High Point for at least the last 10 years has focused— and tried to be really deliberate about being a teaching church, about helping people grow in their leadership ability, and then going and using it in other places. Does that make sense? And so, um, so I'm actually just gonna, I'm just gonna drop this on you, okay? I am very happy 
and very sad um, to tell you this morning that Lloyd Biddle has accepted a senior pastor position at a church in Aurora, Illinois. So I'm going to invite Lloyd to come up here. Mark uh, Finley on our elder board is going to come up um, for us to pray together after that. But I, I, I do want you to know—so th- I'm going to let Lloyd talk first. Let him say his bit, and then I'll say whatever else I think needs to be said, which is always voluminous. But, um, but I want to give Lloyd a chance to share with you. So Lloyd, why don't you come? Hello. Hi, Point. How are you guys? Uh, Nick, I'm envious. I, I'm almost wanting to pull out First Thessalonians chapter 4 and start preaching. Because uh, there's some people out here. I know. Preach, you know. <laughs> I, I won't be able to get you until the 12th, but so Nick will get you today. That's cool. Um, uh, about this time, seven years ago, uh, I was installed as pastor at High Point Church. Um, having been here, my family and I uh, came in 2006. Um, my sons were uh, age seven and 12. And so my sons have grown to be men at this church. Not only at, at, from this space was I installed as a pastor, from this space I um, uh, did rites of passage for my boys and launched them towards adulthood. Uh, from this space I married people. In fact, the last official duty I'll do at High Point Church is going to happen on a Saturday, the 24th or 5th. I'm going to marry Chad Mosley and his a beautiful fiance, Janelle Wood. And so I've had a lot of uh, memorable occasions, a lot of celebrations at High Point Church. And uh, even between Nick and I, we started on the elder board on the very same day um, in uh, uh, July, June of of 2013. We both started. So it'll be be strange. It'll be strange for me uh, to to leave uh, High Point Church. But... Uh, the one uh, joke we have is one of the last questions when they were uh, interviewing me to come t- to High Point, Nick asked, you know, Lloyd, how long are you going to stay here? And he was trying to say four years. And I was like, oh, no, about three years, you know, kind of a seminary's preparation. And here it is seven years later, right? God, God has got a very interesting sense of humor. And so God had me minister to you for seven years. And that's because I needed to learn some things. Uh, it took me double the time I thought. Uh, to learn. And it's been a ble- great blessing for, for me and my family to be here. And uh, you prayed me through a lot of uh, tough times. Uh, I can't thank you enough for that. Um, I'm going to a good church in Aurora. Uh, the, the pastor, Andy Morgan, uh, retired at age 70. He's going to stay at the church. He and his wife are going to stay at the church. Uh, I like Aurora because there's a tremendous amount of diversity there in the town. About 42% uh, uh, Latinos, about 52% Anglos, and then about 20-30% African American. And um, I have a desire to to build a really strong multi-ethnic church. And that comes out of a deep-held belief that in America, in the cities where there's diversity, we need strong multi-ethnic churches to display the beauty of the gospel that connects 
uh, Jews and Gentiles, all Gentiles together in one family. It breaks down uh, racial barriers by making us in the same family. Come on with me. And so Nick and I have been working on that and Nicole, all of us have been working on that. That's gonna continue to go forward. Uh, I'm gonna go to a, it's a small church with a tremendous amount of potential, uh, a lot of resemblance to, to this church in terms of the potential of the people that are there. And uh, last, I just wanna thank Nick. Um, this wouldn't have happened if he didn't hire me. Um, uh, over the years, we've been at each other sometimes, but he has always been a, uh, uh, encouraged me in terms of my career progress. And this wouldn't have happened if he hadn't blessed it. And we plan to stay partners even as I go to Aurora. So thank you so much, High Point Church. I will be uh, here until the 22nd of, uh, of, Jan of uh, July. And then my last duty is going to be to, to, to marry Chad. I'm looking forward to that. Bless you guys. Thank you so much. Stay, boy, stay. Mark is, um, Mark's on our elder board, and Kent Rohauser couldn't be here today, so Mark is the elder statesman. All right. Um, it's an honor to uh, be up here today. It's an honor to uh, be praying and blessing Lloyd and Deborah. They have been such a, a wonderful, wonderful part of this church, and I'm going to miss Lloyd terribly, but I'm also blessed to know Lloyd, and Lloyd, I will come down to Aurora one of these Amen. Sundays when all this is over and give you a big hug. I won't give you a hug today, Amen. but I'll, I'll come down to Aurora and I'll do it then, okay? Amen. So uh, congregation, uh, those of you who are here, um, would you please stand up, and we're going to respond to Lloyd's leaving by blessing him. And I'm going to lead you in blessing him with Psalm 20. And then when I'm done with Psalm 20, then I'm just going to pray. So um, just kind of follow along with me. Don't repeat after me, but this is a blessing I'm going to give right out of the Psalms. If you'd like to raise your hand, please raise your hand towards Lloyd. You at home, you may do the same. And let's bless Lloyd. This is Psalm 20 for the director of music, a Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you, Lloyd and Deborah, when you're in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your offerings. Selah. Lloyd and Deborah, may he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. We will shout for joy when you are victorious and we'll lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now we know that the Lord saves his anointed ones. He answers you with his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but you trust in the name of the Lord your God. Amen. They are brought to their knees and fall, but you rise up and stand firm. O Lord, save 
Lloyd and Deborah, please answer them when they call. Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you for Lloyd. Thank you for Deborah. Thank you for the wonderful example that they are and they have been. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're going to do in them and through them. Thank you for the many lives that they have touched. Thank you, Lord, for their touching my life, for their being there for me when I needed them and my family. Thank you, Lord, for all of the people that they've touched here at High Point and for all that they'll touch in Aurora. Lord, I thank you for the ministry of encouragement and comfort that Lloyd has and for the beautiful gift of music that Deborah has. Lord, please expand their scope. Please expand their reach. Lord, show them all that you want them to do. Lord, we pray for the country. We pray for healing. Lord, we pray for unity. We pray, Lord, for leadership that will lead us in a path of justice, in a path of truth. And Lord, I pray for Nick today as he preaches, that you'd fill him with your Holy Spirit, that he would bring the word to us that we need to hear. And Lord, that you would um, just release through him that which will touch our hearts, our minds. Lord, inspire us, challenge us to go forth and to further your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I want to say a little bit about Lloyd and Debbie, a little bit about what this means for High Point, and a little bit for, um, a little bit about the gospel out of Luke 17, and about what God might say to us in this. If, if we can shut this off, that would be really great. I'm not sure if that's possible, but that would help me. Um, in case you're wondering, you might have mixed feelings about the fact that Lloyd is leaving, right? You may have some negative feelings like wishing he was, all that, right? Let me just tell you what the right thing to do is in a situation like this. It is to appreciate, to express gratitude, to encourage, and to congratulate Lloyd. He's not ours. We didn't even make him. Like, Lloyd didn't become a good leader when he got here. He's sharpened himself over the last seven years. He's learned stuff. He's already a godly man when he got here, and a father and husband. And um, he's served this church for 14 years. He's served on its elder board and as its pastor for more than seven. And um, and he's done so really well, really faithfully. Um, some of you who've come to High Point recently, and Lloyd has always been the pastor since you've been here, you, you need to know that Lloyd came before me, and he came at a time, he came at the worst season in the history of High Point Church, this, a season where this building was going to get sold back to the bank, and where there was not going to be a High Point Church, and Lloyd didn't come 10 years before that, enjoy a bunch of good times before that happened. Lloyd and Debbie came, kind of parachuted right in the middle of it. And when a lot of people left who had been here a really long time, Lloyd and Debbie stayed. They and God know why, you know what I mean? Um, but they did, and they did ministry, and they helped heal, and they did things that were really important. And Lloyd was on the, the search committee, God rest all of their souls, who hired me. And um, so I knew Lloyd when I was still in Florida, right? Um, and Debbie is maybe the longest active member of our worship ministry, She's, um, she's been leading this church good times and bad, week in and week out, in helping us turn our hearts to God, adore God, 
recognize his place in our life, reorder our priorities, reorder our hearts, reorder our emotions towards him, and to have faith. The faith that we need each day. And she's been serving, and it's a lot of work. And she didn't get paid a dime. We just paid Lloyd, and I'm just kidding. That's just, a, that's a ministry joke that you pay, you pay the pastor, and it's, you, you feel entitled to work with both. But, you know, just, just a lot of just like nights, like chord charts, getting stuff ready, doing all this stuff so that they can be up here and lead us, right? Um, and so I want to thank Debbie. I know Debbie's done a lot of other stuff, and she's taught classes and Bible studies, and she's led women's stuff, and she has done career transitions, not just the class she did recently, but there have been people at High Point Church who, um, who lost their job or had to go through a really significant career transition. That's what she does for a living, and she did it with them, so with a few people. She did it just for, for free. She just did it just to help them, and this is something that she's paid very, very handsomely for in her career. So Debbie's done a lot to serve this church that many of you maybe have know nothing about. Um, Lastly, and I'm sort of known for this, um, relishing in it too much, but I do, I do actually believe it's important to say out loud some things that are uncomfortable to say out loud. It is not easy to be the African-American statesman in a predominantly Northern European church by ethnicity or in a part of Madison that is so excessively beige. Um, and as, you know, as, as many of us belong to the majority culture, we think we're fantastic, right? And I'm not saying you're not fantastic, okay? But it's just hard to be that person. It's always hard to be that person, no matter how well you're treated, to just be the person who is not in the majority group and who is always seen that way and often always feels that way. And, but it takes all that work, and it takes these statesmen and people willing to do that, and it is a long sacrifice. And some days it's really grueling, and some days it's just a little weight, but it's, it's always there. And I don't just say that to pay lift service or just to honor Lloyd. I think it's important not just to honor Lloyd, but to recognize churches order their values by what they honor. And we should honor the day-in and day-out sacrifices of people because it's those things that make the real difference in people's lives. It's not the sexy, like, big stuff. Like, it's not the, you know, how nice Nicole sings or like how funny I am when I preach. It's not, it, it's not the stuff that catches our attention. It's more the stuff that you pay no attention to. And things like the long sacrifice of being, this, t doing the kind of statesman work Lloyd had to do as our African-American pastor, statesman, was a long obedience. And it would have, and the fact that he's African-American was an opportunity. It wasn't a thing in itself. Had he not pastored faithfully and been godly and focused on being a good husband and a good man and a good father and making the gut checks when difficult things came into his life and working through the difficulties we had on staff and as a church and, 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 doing things day in, day out, it wouldn't have mattered, right? The honor that we give him as being this long-term African-American statesman at our church isn't just because he's African. It's because he, he embraced the difficult opportunity of providence, the ethnicity and story he was born into, and he used it by partnering it with godliness and with faith for your benefit. And that's something that we should honor. We should continue to honor. I think it's really important. Let me say a couple words about what this means for High Point. Um, we are a teaching church. 
it, we consider it a privilege for someone to leave here to a position of more responsibility, where their gifts can be used more fully, and where their um, where experience that they got here in the body of Christ can be used elsewhere in the body of Christ. It's a privilege for us. Um, Madison is a transient city. We're always going to be ascending church. We're going to be sending disciples, missionaries, planters, pastors, everybody. We're going to be sending. And if we have to have a constant attitude of sending, of blessing, of giving, or we're just going to be angry. You know, God has blessed us with the necessity of force to order our attitude the way it should be if we lived anywhere. Right? I want to say thirdly that it's good for Lloyd to choose to go and bear more weight in the kingdom. Because leaders, when there is need, leaders that can do more should. I don't just, I don't mean working harder and killing themselves. I don't mean if you could work 90-hour weeks instead of 70. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying you should do more if you can't. What I'm saying is if you can step into a larger responsibility— and bear more responsible weight, and produce more fruitfulness, it's good. You should do it. Because by doing so, the vacation, the vacating of space at High Point creates opportunities for emerging leaders that he's been mentoring. And when he goes to another place and creates fruitfulness there, he creates space with him for emerging leaders to emerge and to create another generation and another teaching church and new, a new place of pollination to new life in the church. If you can do more, you should do more. Because it creates more opportunity for others and calls other people up to do more. And it, it presses on people the needful responsibility of growth. And so it's a good thing for him to do this. Um, I want to tell you that the elders are mindful that we'll be losing Lloyd's unique role of statesmanship and his experience in working to pursue the goal of being a church for all people, especially in the area of multi-ethnicity. Um, we know that his leaving is going to change the makeup of our staff, but his leaving is not going to change the makeup of our staff's values or our commitment to be a church for all people. Some of you may believe that as we have tried to focus more on growing in multi-ethnicity as a church, that that was probably coincident with Lloyd coming on staff, and probably he was the one pushing it from behind the scenes, and now that he's going to leave, are we still going to remain committed to that because Lloyd won't be here, right? And the answer is, no, that's been the commitment of the church since the Lord Jesus and his apostles. It's supposed to be of every church in all places at all times. And it should have been, if it wasn't at any point, a high point. When Lloyd and Debbie came here, they came during a season where the, most things were going poorly at high point. The high point was actually fighting really hard on that front and doing better, right? And so— High Point's kind of been up and down on this, and this does not change anything about the values of the gospel or our commitment to it. And I think our elders understand that. Um, lastly, for those of you who are part of the church or listening at home, um, who for you, just Lloyd's presence and his character was just comforting for you. I was, I was talking to one um, non-white younger person in the church who is just really godly, a great part of our church. And the person said to me this week, yeah, when I came here and Lloyd was the associate pastor, I knew, like, I'm safe here. These folks at least understand something. Like, I, I feel, like, just the fact that he was there did something emotionally for them that was helpful. And now Lloyd's not going to be here to do that. And I want you to know that I, I don't want to, I don't minimize that. 
I know that that is natural to all human experience. It's part of what's bound up in our heart. We, we recognize that there are these, these subtle signals that we all get from things, and those don't go away just because you believe in Jesus and you believe we're all one people. And so I want you to understand that, um, that I am actively seeking members and our staff of other ethnicities and people. I spent probably five hours this week doing that. That's normal for me, not abnormal. Um, and so I, I want you to understand that though um, it's, you usually fail when trying to recruit people of other ethnicities, especially in a place like getting people to come to Wisconsin and then come to Madison and then come to the west side of Madison. It's very difficult. But um, there are some things that I will fight the long defeat until they pry my sword out of my cold dead hand. And this is one of them. And so I, I want you to know that. And I want you to know that— um, that if you, if you have things to tell me, you can tell me. I also want to say this to, um, there might be some people watching who are like in our youth group, younger people. Uh, one of you is going to pastor here. Okay, there are, there are kids, white and not white, in our youth group. It's the most multi-ethnic ministry in our church. And I'm looking to you. One of you could be my replacement. One of you could be one of the next pastors of this church. I want you to know that. I want you to know that with all the craziness of youth and teenage years and whatever you're dealing with right now, that God has a plan for all of you to do all kinds of things, to go all kinds of places, and for one or more of you, it may be to pastor this church and to be its shepherd. And I want you to know that you could be that, that pastor if God calls you and raises you up to do it. Okay, I want to I turn to try to get a handle on what God might say to us by reading a passage out of Luke 17. And it's not going to appear immediately why this message is going to be deeply encouraging and helpful, um, but it's going to be probably by the end, okay? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust—wait, I have that. I think I have a clicker here. Let me read the first 10 verses for you. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back and say, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it'll obey you. Suppose that one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along and sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. It's not over. 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 Okay. Nicole and I were talking just before the service that there's a kind of spirit of heaviness that we can just sense in people. People are just, they're tired. 
They feel heavy. It's like Frodo in the second book of Lord of the Rings. It just feels like you're carrying a weight around your neck that's just hauling you down. That's just, you can't even, you can't sense it, but you, you can't look at it, but somehow you can feel it, you know? And for a lot of you, it's the strongest it's ever been in your life. And you wonder, like, you know, how, how much more of this are we going to have to deal with? How much longer is this going to take? What are we going to do, right? And the answer is, you don't know. Who knows? See, sometimes people think that the most brittle or the weakest heart, the heart that's prone to fail in doing what must be done or doing what's right or living well, is the one that's just endured the most. That if, if you have to suffer the most, at some point, you're just going to break and give up. Or, or maybe they think that there's like a natural constitution of people. Some people can take more than others. There's some truth to that, probably. And there is probably some amount of sorrow and breakage that will ultimately break almost anybody. Though Viktor Frankl, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, writing about the concentration camps, said that there were some people who seemed strong that broke, and then other people who looked at life differently, who saw it with a different kind of meaning, who seemed basically unbreakable, in will, even if their body could be broken. It, tur it turns out that there are—it it gets a little bit more complicated than that. In fact, the most brittle person, in some ways, is the most entitled person. The thing that makes you least able to cope with things is the strong and certain belief that you shouldn't have to cope with them. The more you think you're being put upon, the least willing you are to face what you need to face. And the more you think you have multiple options, the more of your energy and your heart and your mind is split between the two and torn between the two, and the less focus and peace you have about what must be done. Right? And so, though we wouldn't think so, it's actually the entitled heart that is the weakest. Now, that may feel a little off because you might think, to call somebody entitled is to really take a shot at them. Because when we talk about entitlement, our definition of entitlement is usually something like this. Someone that has it good and won't lift a finger to do their share. Right? So you ask their kids just to, you ask your kid just to bring their laundry downstairs, and they give you a face. And you're like, you want to weave your laundry? Like, yeah, I mean, like you just want to, you know, do something to them. Um, because you're like, you can't lift a finger. Like, you have no idea how good you have it, right? And that's, when we say entitlement, that's usually what we mean, right? It's like somebody's latte wasn't right, and they get all exercised. You know what I mean? And, and that, like, that is entitlement. It's sort of the, the worst kind, and it's very evident. But most of us don't want to believe that we're entitled. But the problem is, is that almost all of us are carrying all kinds of entitlements around us with us all the time. And we have no idea how it taxes our focus in faith. And how Jesus actually said that entitlement is the negation of faith itself. That to be entitled, in the proper sense, is to not believe. We'll get to why that is true in a minute. When, we, when you read this passage carefully, Jesus—he doesn't use the word entitlement, but Jesus' explanation of this thing we call entitlement is much more stringent. It's much harder. It applies to much more. His would be something like this. Faith never allows an entitling dynamic to keep it from doing the next right thing. If we have faith, if we have faith as small as a mustard seed, the smallest, discreet, real amount of faith— then it orders our heart knowing that we are servants of the living king who we are, the, we are indisputably under the authority of and 
absolutely submitted to, and every next right thing is our duty. And no duty that we performed before has any relevance to whether or not we're supposed to do the next. I, it drives me nuts how much my own heart thinks that because I have done some good thing that I shouldn't be asked to do the next good thing. Right? And in this passage, you can see at least three ways that entitlement comes up really strongly. Right? The first is out of suffering. I've suffered enough. I shouldn't have to do the next right thing. Right? So if, if somebody comes to you and harms you seven times in one day. And then the seventh time, you've already forgiven six times. The seventh time they come to you, they say, they say forgive me, I'm, I was wrong. Right? He says, you must forgive them. Okay. Now, lest you think that I'm using this as a subtle opportunity to tell, to say what I think about um, the whole issue of racial justice, I am not. Okay, if I was preaching a sermon on that, I would start more specifically with verse 1 and talk about stumbling blocks and say that what Jesus says is, is that anytime you morally harm another person by an injustice you perpetrate against them in a way that turns them away from faith in Jesus and to do what they were created to be, and you participate in that, it would be better for you to be drowned in the sea with a two million ton rock wrapped around your neck. It is Causing another to stumble, that is to morally harm them, to turn them away from the good, is so morally significant that God calls it fundamentally damnable on its face. And what a whole lot of people are telling us, at least in some sense justly, is that there are a lot of stumbling blocks in our culture, some of them related to racial justice. But Jesus is not—Jesus' words are not limited to that. I know people have turned away from the gospel because of how gossipy a church was. People couldn't stay out of each other's business, that they, they, they found it their right to talk badly about others. And in doing so, they felt themselves attacked. They recognized the injustice of having their humanity minimized by how other people talked to them, sometimes racially, but sometimes how their, their butt looked in some pants or something. Something idiotically shallow, but that had an incredible effect on the heart of the person being attacked. Right? Especially in adolescence, but even throughout life. And then he says, you can't back away from your responsibility. He said, right? He says, if somebody sins, rebuke them. If somebody repents, forgive them. So if I was preaching, which I'm not, a sermon on racial justice, the next thing I would say is, anytime we're in the wrong, our brothers and sisters have the right to rebuke us, and we should listen, and if they're right, we should repent. So if I was preaching a sermon on racial justice, then I would say that to the extent to which there are issues of racial justice lingering among us, people who recognize them, and to the extent to which we may participate in them, they should rebuke us. And our response to that should not be to attack them. It should be to repent and to figure out how to create harmony and justice, right? And then my third point would be, if I was preaching that sermon, is— that if somebody who is wrong you repents, you must forgive them. You must forgive them. Right? Whether they have been systematically unjust towards you, whether they broke every single window in your store, 
Whatever it was, whatever they did, whatever you had to rebuke them for, and whatever God convicted them for, if they repent, if they say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, you must forgive them, right? Now, that's not the sermon I'm preaching. The sermon I'm preaching is about the underlying foundational spiritual truth that makes all that go, which is what faith really is, which is when I lay all three of those on you as the next good thing that may be in front of you that you may have to do, you may say, Nick, I, listen, I've suffered a lot. I've been like seven times in one day. I mean, have you done that? I mean, how many times can somebody offend you in a month? That's over 200. Except in February, it's only 196, right? But like it's—but that's just one person. There's five other people that live in my house. Right? It's—Jesus isn't creating some weird counterfactual. You are going to be sinned against hundreds of times every month. That's life. That's human life under the curse. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, especially when somebody— asks for forgiveness. What are you going to do if it's your uncle who's a drug addict and he literally is asking forgiveness for the 600th time? Well, if he asks for forgiveness, you need to forgive him. Why? Well, first, because you were forgiven for a lot more by Jesus. But secondly, because anybody who puts a stumbling block in front of these little ones, it's better for them to be thrown in the sea with a millstone tied around their neck. Your responsibility is always to bear the image of God, to do what God would do in your stead if he was in your limited space. And he is a forgiving God. And so anybody who repents and is not forgiven by an image bearer, that person is putting a stumbling block in front of the repenter and saying, this is, I do not participate in a world in which forgiveness is freely given. Which is the most important thing for a sinner to know. For someone who needs to repent, they need to know that when they come, they'll be forgiven by you because you were forgiven by God because they'll be forgiven by God. There must always be an invited path of moral restoration. Whether for gossip, whether for theft, whether for a harm to your reputation, whether for people coming out of our criminal justice system. There has to be a path. And the path shouldn't just be, if you bang down these doors, I'll let you free. The path has to be to invite the person to repent, invite the person back into relationship with you, and even in a highly protracted and difficult sense, finding a way to invite a person back into the society in which we all dwell. That has to happen. Right? And so what happens there, though, is that the apostles— try to shift the responsibility for doing this kind of work, for doing the next right thing. So one, they could say, well, if I'd suffered that much from being attacked, how could I really be accepted to do the next? God increase my faith. Or if I had already obeyed that many times or obeyed that well, haven't I obeyed enough? Like, isn't there some point where it's unreasonable for you to expect me to obey more? Right? Or you, you could even say— that if you understood all that, maybe your faith is good. And Jesus destroys all three of those entitlements. The, I've, I have really cool faith. I have good faith. I really understand. I get it. Other people don't get it. I've obeyed so much. Isn't it unreasonable to ask these further things for me? And I've suffered so much. Don't you understand that I shouldn't be asked to bear the image of God well? Right? And Jesus says, no. And then, and then he said, Jesus says, no, you must. And then they say, well, increase our faith. Because the assumption here is, is that 
the difference between a person who doesn't do that and a person who does do that is this, the difference between somebody with a little faith and a lot of faith. That people with like varsity level faith or big faith or like executive level faith, they can do that. But normal Christians can't, can't do that and wouldn't do that and shouldn't be asked to do that. That's not what it means, right? And, and that's not what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says, hey, listen, if you have a mustard seed of faith, you can uproot a mulberry tree. In another gospel, he says, you can have a, tell a mountain to get thrown into the sea and that'll happen, right? What's he saying? Is he, he, what is he saying? Listen, you have no idea how potent faith is. If you just have a little faith, you can do so much. Is that what he's saying? Well, that's an implication of what he's saying. It's true. But that's not the point of what he's saying. He's calling them out on the cop-out here. They're saying, Jesus, we could do that if we had more faith. And Jesus is like, that's not true. You could do that if you had any faith. The reason you can't forgive, the reason you won't rebuke when you should and then forgive when they repent, the reason you allow yourself to sin and put stumbling blocks in front of other people to their ultimate destruction and probably yours, the reason why you think that's all unreasonable is not because you don't have enough faith. It's because you don't have any faith. That's what he's saying. He probably didn't say it in that tone of voice. But that's what he was saying. Make no mistake about it. He said, if you have the smallest discrete amount of faith, a seed, a really small one, then you can do anything. And then he tells them why. He tells them why. Why? He said, think about it this way. Imagine you had a servant. And your servant got up at six and worked till sundown. Worked a 10 or 12 hour day. And then they came in at night. You only have one servant, right? Would you say to that servant, Fred, Fred, you've worked so hard all day, all day, watching the sheep, plowing the field. You've worked so hard, you're probably exhausted. I've made dinner for you. Why don't you sit down and I'll wash your hands and your feet and serve you dinner because you deserve it. And then I'll, then I'll, do, I'll do something for my dinner. He's like, no, no one does that. Bill, Fred comes in from the field, and then it's his job to make dinner, and prepare dinner, and serve dinner, and to wait till he's done eating. And then he can go do whatever he wants. He doesn't get to forego dinner because he plowed the field. The two are unrelated. He's like, he's like, just because you did the last thing you were told to do has no bearing on the next thing you are told to do if you are a servant 100% under the authority of a master. Full stop. And further, he gets a little, one more little barbin right at the end. Further, after you've done everything, what you should say is, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty. Meaning, even if you do do all the stuff, you shouldn't think your faith is great. Like, you did the minimum. You didn't do the maximum. And you didn't even do it very well. Like, if you really look back at all your obediences, they're not that good. They're all mixed with stuff. You did the minimum half the time. Like, there are all kinds of situations where, like, you didn't even really like the person you were doing with. You certainly didn't love them. And, like, you just kind of were going through the motions or you're doing the stuff. Like, even when you were serving, you really weren't serving with vigor, with love, with passion. With the kind of passion that flows out of Jesus, with the kind of passion that flows out of God. That was not there. And so even if you did it all, man, even when you did it all, you didn't really do it. 
You did it with that pissy look on your face, and you slumped your shoulders, and you gave, gave your parent that look like, I shouldn't have to do this. That's what you did, really, in your heart. So let's not pretend, right? You see the point he's making? He's saying, the number one basic fundamental idea that makes any amount of faith legitimate, even in the first place, is understanding that God is God, and you are his creation. He is the father, you are the child. He is the master, you are the servant. He is a hundred percent complete and absolute authority. He doesn't tell you everything you're supposed to do. That's another different point. But you're a hundred percent under his authority. What he and he doesn't say, like, be an accountant. What he says is, don't commit adultery, right? Like, he gives moral commands, and he tells us the, the kind of right things we should do. Then as stewards, we have to decide for ourselves what to do. He leads us through his direct, written, revealed will of what it is to do what's good, what's right, what's faithful, what's just, right? It says in Micah 6, 8, what God wants from you is to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. It's not complicated. It's just hard, and it makes us, whenever we face it, we want to say, God, increase our faith, because we want to shift the responsibility on Him. But our responsibilities are so clear. So clear. And no matter how much we've suffered, it's actually not relevant to the next good thing. No matter how much we think we've already done, it's actually not relevant to the next good thing. And no matter how great we think our faith is, because we understand this, it's actually not relevant to the next good thing. And your faith isn't fantastic. You're an unworthy servant. Okay, so how is that helpful? How is what I've just said helpful in this moment where there's, you came in with plenty of bad news and we gave you some more? Right? And the answer is this. You have no idea what's going to come down the line. You have no idea what's going to be asked from, from you. Your life might go the way you want it to. Unlikely. All kinds of different things might happen that disappoint you and hurt you and that you don't want to see. And in each case, your duty at every moment is going to be, as best as you understand, in the character of God to do the next good thing. That's it. Okay? Which means this. Nothing more is demanded of you than that. Nothing more is demanded of you than that. Which is comforting. But it also means, I also, I also think it's helpful in this way. That's simple. We spend so much energy with our hearts divided. We don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to. You know what you must do. It's right in front of your— it's, if, if you just point yourself in that direction, given by faith, the path will come up under your feet. You'll know the next thing. God doesn't, doesn't judge that you don't do the perfect thing. We're servants. We just need to do what we're told. Out of faith. If we do, there's a power in it that can uproot a plant and throw it, plant it in the ocean, or can uproot a mountain and throw it in the ocean. God's inhabiting of us doing the next right thing in faith is with the very power of his own spirit. Right? If, you want, if you want there to be power in your actions, by all means, if there is some prophetic revelation by which you know the secret will of God, 
yes, he'll cooperate with that if he's revealing it. But if you want to walk every day, every moment, all the time, in the supernatural power of God, do the next right thing in line with the character of God. And you probably already know what it is. And sometimes you might get an additional nudge of leading. And if, if we recognize that, if we just recognize that truth, to give ourselves to Jesus unconditionally, to know that he will, he will never ask anything of us that is not for some good he is working, even if we have no idea what that good is. If we recognize that every act is an act of love where he is seeking to redeem others and form us for eternity so that we would be the spotless bride that he would forever enjoy and we would be forever enjoyed by. We recognize that promise and that it comes by his generous redemption, giving everything and never saying to his father, increase my faith, but doing everything necessary for our redemption, giving himself fully and unconditionally for the next thing we needed, which was justification and forgiveness. Then your heart won't be torn. You'll have a single eye. You'll have a determined peace. You'll know exactly where to go and what to do. You'll be able to face any situation, whether you're drinking a coffee or going to war or dying of a disease. And in so doing, you will have the strength necessary, and you will be walking in the very steps of the power of the Spirit of God himself. Because when you act according to the character of God, you act according to the will of God. And you find yourself walking in the power of God. Let's pray. God, as we, um, we sit down and answer some questions as we, as we enter into this next week, as we consider if there's anything that we need to repent of now, to you, to others, recognizing how morally serious a thing it is to bear the image of God, how how great and terrible it is at the same time, how much our life matters, and how freely you forgive, and how infuriating we must be, and yet how loving you have proven yourself to be. We pray that in these next minutes, as we just sing songs about you, that you would help us to give our hearts entirely to accept you, to adore you, to appreciate you, and to be—to have our hearts made single, to get rid of what tears them apart, and to be free and at liberty— for what we need to put our hand to. We pray that faith, real faith, would be released in our hearts and that we would believe in these moments and that you would do incredibly redemptive things in us by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before Nicole.